You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Much of our work is by necessity conducted out of the public eye. We do that to protect the constitutional rights of all Americans and to protect the integrity of our investigations. Despite the intention of Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Justice Department to keep secret the details of its investigation and unprecedented search of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, the federal judge who approved the search warrant has other ideas. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt ruled that portions of the FBI affidavit used to secure the search warrant should be unsealed, and he gave the government until noon on Thursday to propose what information in the affidavit should be kept secret. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, a lecturer at Columbia Law School. Jennifer, are you surprised that the judge has decided to release parts of that FBI affidavit? Yes, I was really surprised. I, along with basically every other legal commentator I saw, thought that there was virtually no chance the judge would do that. I guess the judge was just convinced here that there's such great public interest in this that, assuming it can be properly redacted, the public ought to be able to see portions of it. So now the big question turns to what redactions will the judge accept from DOJ? Just how unusual is it to unseal an affidavit while the investigation is still going on? It's very unusual, and and usually it's because the person whose property has been searched has no interest in the public learning about that and learning about the investigation that is likely targeting that person. So, you know, you don't typically have people wanting these things publicly released. This, of course, is a unique situation where Trump wants to try to turn it to his advantage and claim he's being targeted and so on. So that's why we are where we are. And and also, of course, Trump isn't the party that moved to unseal. It was media organizations. Media doesn't typically care about your average search warrant. Explain what kind of information normally goes into an affidavit supporting a search warrant request. 
So it's not the entire investigation necessarily, but what it has to do is establish probable cause that at least one crime has been committed and that evidence of that crime can be found at the scene that is to be searched. So they have to go through the information that leads to that conclusion. So in this case, I assume that it goes through however they learned that there were potentially documents that should not have been at Mar-a-Lago there. It likely goes through the negotiations with Trump's team, the back and forth that they had, the boxes that were seized by National Archives, however they determined that there were still things outstanding, the further negotiations, the subpoena, and then ultimately, however, they reached a conclusion that there still were items outstanding that were likely at Mar-a-Lago. That may include statements from witnesses who saw documents there. It's essentially the evidence that establishes to a judge's satisfaction not beyond a reasonable doubt, not even by a preponderance, but at least that there's probable cause to believe this crime has been committed and you can find the evidence there. And importantly, it has to be that the evidence is there at the time they're going to search. It can't be at one time there was evidence there. It has to be fairly fresh. Jay Bratt, the Justice Department's counterintelligence chief, argued that the ongoing investigation would be severely compromised, including the names of agents and witnesses and that there was a threat of possible obstruction and interference in the investigation in a case where the judge has already found probable cause that there's a violation of one of the obstruction statutes. That sounds pretty convincing, to me at least. Yeah, I mean, and that's why it's so critical what the judge does with the request for redaction, because You know, there's really no point in releasing a document if virtually everything in it is redacted and you can't learn anything. I mean, that doesn't assist the public in this matter of great importance, as the judge has determined. On the other hand, I think the judge should take seriously the Justice Department's concerns about its investigation and the integrity of the investigation. And of course, the safety of most primarily witnesses, not just their safety, but that they should not be tampered with, of course. So, you know, weighing all of that, the question is how extensive will the redactions be? You know, there's some information in the public already about these negotiations between Trump's team and the National Archives and then eventually the FBI. Some of that seems like it could come out and not be redacted. That would be safe. You know, the things I expect to be redacted are whatever source information they receive that these documents are still at Mar-a-Lago and exactly where they are. That's the sort of information you would think would be redacted. And then, of course, anything else sensitive that they think would jeopardize the ongoing nature of the investigation will likely be redacted, too. But I expect they can release some of this, particularly about the back and forth with Team Trump and his lawyers and the National Archives and FBI. I think we'll see some of that. Do you think we'll learn more about the classified documents that they were looking for? That's an interesting question. I certainly, we're certainly not going to see any information that's specific enough that it itself is classified. You know, in other words, we're not going to hear, oh, it's a cable that talks about you know, Russia's nuclear program and says that it's, you know, X, Y, and Z. But would the judge entertain releasing some general information about the nature of the documents? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe if the judge determines that, that that information doesn't jeopardize the investigation. I mean, that seems to be where he will likely draw the line. So we could learn more, but it'll be fairly general. 
the judge gave the Justice Department a week to propose what information in the document should be kept secret. And he said he'll propose his own redactions if he disagrees with theirs. So is he trying to send a message to them, don't redact everything, or I'm going to do my own stuff? Oh, of course. Of course. He's saying be reasonable. You know, don't send me a document that that redacts everything except the the thes and the as and the ands, you know, the, the articles. Um, so, sure, he's saying don't do this. But, you know, they, they should be reasonable anyway, you know. And, and I suspect, you know, what usually happens is DOJ is a little bit too conservative and the judge may push back a little bit. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what we end up with. I mean, hopefully the public will be able to learn a bit more without jeopardizing the investigation or any of the witnesses. I mean, I think that's what all of us want. What does it tell you that one of Trump's attorneys attended the court hearing but declined to comment other than to say Trump wants the affidavit unsealed? So it's interesting. So, of course, Trump has been saying for days that he wants the affidavit unsealed. But my view is he doesn't really want it unsealed. He wants to see it because he wants to identify people who have provided information to the government against him. But does he really want it fully unsealed? Does he really want the public to be able to see the basis for the probable cause to believe that crimes have been committed and evidence of those crimes, you know, is at Mar-a-Lago? I don't think so. So I think the reason that he had a lawyer there but didn't actually make a formal legal filing calling for the unsealing, joining in the media's request, really shows that he actually doesn't want it public. He just wants to know what's in it. Now, he said he'd allow the government time to appeal his ruling. Is that something you think the Justice Department might actually do, appeal? I think they might appeal if, in the end, they feel that the judge's ruling releases too much information. So we'll, we'll have to, to wait and see what the outcome of that is. But yes, certainly, if they think that their investigation uh, is jeopardized or certainly any classified material is jeopardized by what the judge wants to be released, I think they will appeal. Thanks, Jennifer. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. We will not talk about this until it's over. It's a grand jury, and grand juries, as I recall, a secret. Rudy Giuliani appeared before the Georgia grand jury investigating criminal efforts to overturn the 2020 election on Wednesday. Giuliani was told that he's now a target of the investigation that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has been conducting for more than a year. We are going to look at everything until that investigation is complete. It's not known what Giuliani said in his six hours in the closed-door session, but he made several appearances before Georgia lawmakers promoting conspiracy theories and claiming that he had evidence of widespread voter fraud. You can see them counting the ballots more than once two, three, four, five times. You would have to be a moron not to realize if that's voter fraud. Joining me is Elizabeth Wydra, president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Rudy Giuliani was told by Atlanta prosecutors that he's a target in their investigation. Is it unusual to call a target to testify before the grand jury? Why would he answer any questions when he's the target? Well, I think that's a very good question. You know, if you are called before a grand jury, you can be called as a witness, you know, simply a material witness, or you can be called as a target. And we understand that he is a target. And that means that the grand jury and the prosecutor likely have substantial evidence that link him to a crime, and he could very likely be charged. So 
I think there is a very, very strong likelihood that he invoked the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and declined to answer questions. You know, he could have also tried to put forth this attorney-client privilege, but I don't think that really would relate to most of the questions of allegations of crime because they simply weren't taking place in conversations between him and Donald Trump. And also there's a crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege, which doesn't allow you to assert that privilege over fraudulent criminal conversations. On his podcast on Monday, Giuliani said, quote, As I recall correctly, I appeared in Georgia as attorney for Donald J. Trump, so I'm going to be prosecuted for what I did as an attorney. Does that theory make sense to you? No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, it's unclear whether Giuliani was on a mission from Trump as his attorney in Georgia or not, but the real gist of the matter is when he was making these public statements at the, you know, for example, the Georgia Senate Judiciary Committee hearing about election integrity, you know, in which he spread conspiracy theories about what he referred to as widespread irregularities, which there's been absolutely no evidence found that that has any merit whatsoever. You know, whether those are part of an unlawful coordinated attempt to alter the outcome of the 2020 elections. And that's not protected by any type of attorney relationship. If Giuliani made statements at legislative hearings in Georgia falsely claiming that there had been widespread voter fraud. So he testified before the grand jury for about six hours. Does that length of time mean that he didn't take the fifth for every question or didn't invoke attorney-client privilege? Or could it take that long just to have them ask questions and answer? In other words, does the time tell us anything? The time doesn't necessarily tell us what happened. You know, he could very well have pleaded the fifth to every question, and they simply had six hours worth with breaks, of course of questions to ask him, because very frequently prosecutors or investigators will continue to ask the questions, even if they know that the witness is going to invoke the fifth. And so, you know, it definitely does go faster than if the witness gave a full answer to the question. It nonetheless does take quite a bit of time. Among the potential crimes that the DA Willis is investigating is making false statements to state and local government bodies, as well as solicitation of election fraud and conspiracy. Since Giuliani's statements before Georgia lawmakers have been disproven, does it seem like it would be difficult for him to get around a charge of making false statements to state government bodies? Right. And that's why, in some ways, claims about attorney-client privilege, you know, don't really make sense in this instance, because Giuliani was making public comments. They were during a legislative committee hearing. They have been televised. You know, we've seen the tapes. So these statements are out there. And the fact that they are false is incredibly well known, even if some people continue to refuse to accept that truth. And so we know that the scope of the investigation that D.A. Willis is undertaking includes the call between Trump and Raffensperger, the call between Raffensperger and Senator Graham, and also includes these false comments made by Giuliani. And so given that it is so clear cut, it could be an important first step for this investigation to charge Giuliani and then go from there. You know, I think also it would be an important step for the nation because We have continually heard these false claims of election fraud about the 2020 elections. They've been said over and over publicly by Donald Trump and his allies without really any consequence or accountability. 
And so I think to have some actual accountability attached to those false statements could be a way of finally getting more people on board with the actual truth that there wasn't widespread election fraud in the 2020 election. And so I think charging Giuliani for those false statements would be an important step in the DA's investigation and could be an important step for the country as well. Atlanta prosecutors have also told 16 Trump fake electors that they're targets. But this focus on Giuliani brings that investigation right into Trump's inner circle. Giuliani went from being a material witness to being a target. So is Trump far behind? Or is that a bridge too far? You know, we certainly don't know. We can speculate based on what the DA is investigating. And one of the things she is specifically investigating is a phone call between Donald Trump himself and Raffensperger. And so if that particular call is part of the scope of the investigation, obviously that directly involves Trump. And so I think that if I were Donald Trump, I would continue to be nervous about this investigation. Willis has said that the investigation could result in a multi-defendant racketeering or conspiracy case. She's brought RICO cases before. And so does it seem like the time that she's taking and the people that she's calling in before the grand jury lead to a conclusion that it's a bigger case than we might have anticipated when she started? Yes. Well, I think that that often happens with grand juries because you know, part of the reason you have a grand jury when you're engaged in an investigation is to have the authority to subpoena witnesses and information because there are limits to getting people to willingly participate in your investigation. And so very frequently after you impanel a grand jury, you will learn new things. So I think that it would be not surprising at all if her investigation did continue to turn up additional evidence of criminal activity and unlawful activity. Willis has said that the investigation could result in a multi-defendant racketeering or conspiracy case. She's brought RICO cases before. And so does it seem like the time that she's taking and the people that she's calling in before the grand jury lead to a conclusion that it's a bigger case than we might have anticipated when she started? Yes. Well, I think that that often happens with grand juries because, you know, part of the reason you have a grand jury when you're engaged in an investigation is to have the authority to subpoena witnesses and information because, you know, there are limits to getting people to willingly participate in your investigation. And so very frequently after you impanel a grand jury, you will learn new things. So I think that it would be um, not surprising at all if her investigation did continue to turn up additional evidence of criminal activity and unlawful activity. And um, we know that just from the January 6th committee hearings that there were a lot of tentacles to this effort to keep Donald Trump in power despite the votes in the 2020 election. And, you know, in Georgia in particular, uh, President Biden won by nearly 12,000 votes. Um, So, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if the grand jury investigation turned up additional evidence and the targets uh, grew. As you mentioned, Senator Lindsey Graham and also two other lawyers who represented Trump during the 2020 election tried to challenge the subpoenas. 
Graham was turned down and Jenna Ellis, the attorney, was turned down. John Eastman, it's still up in the air. The judge is not being intimidated or playing around with this. Neither is the DA. Is it unusual to have these national figures being called to a grand jury by a county DA? So there's there's very little that is normal about this. But it is, I would say, appropriate. You have state and local laws that apply to everyone, whether you're... um, you know, powerful or powerless, whether you're um, infamous or famous or just a regular person. And, you know, so this is very unusual because we have this coordinated effort going up to the former president of the United States to overturn the will of the people. And it happens to be centered in Fulton County, Georgia. But in many ways, you know, the president and his allies took the fight to Fulton County by making these unsubstantiated claims of election fraud that they claimed took place in Fulton County. And the fact is that no election fraud took place. No widespread election fraud took place in Fulton County. And so the Fulton County DA is pushing back against this conspiracy to try to overturn the results of the people who voted uh, in that county and the people across the nation who voted to put Joe Biden into power instead of Donald Trump. And so it certainly is um, high profile, of course. But I think that what we're seeing is a DA and a judge and a grand jury who are not afraid to really stand up to say, no one is above the law. And we are going to require you to comply with the law. Even if we're, you know, just a little county in Georgia, uh, our laws apply to everyone, including you. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. That's Elizabeth Wydra, president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. 
Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Alan Weisselberg, the Trump Organization's longtime chief financial officer, pleaded guilty to evading taxes on a free apartment and other perks, amounting to more than $1.7 million worth of untaxed extras, striking a deal with prosecutors that could make him a star witness against the company at a trial this fall. The 75-year-old acknowledged guilt on all 15 charges. As part of his plea agreement, Weisselberg will spend five months behind bars, followed by five years of probation. He also agreed to pay nearly $2 million in back taxes, penalties, and interest. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg News investigative reporter for the legal enforcement team. Is this plea deal Weisselberg flipping on Trump? No, not in the sense that we understand flipping as being, let's say, Michael Cohen several years ago, where, as Cohen describes, he decided to plead guilty and he you know, testified to the best of his knowledge, including against Trump in the Stormy Daniels case and related cases, and eventually has really been aggressive in promoting that. Weisselberg's trying to walk a fine line. He wants to and succeeded in reducing exposure to like five months maximum. He's a guy who's 75, so that matters. I mean, he might get you know, less than that. And he's pleading guilty to 15 charges. And he'll be required, if called to testify in the rest of the trial against the Trump organization, to testify about what he did. So it's not like ratting out Donald Trump personally, saying I was in the room with him and did this, but just providing testimony that as an official, the guy who actually controlled the finances and the payments, et cetera, of the company, it's going to be very damaging to the organization and implicitly to Trump himself. I looked at in a different way. He didn't implicate Trump or his family, and he's not going to testify about Trump and his family. And he hasn't cooperated with prosecutors in their broader investigation into Trump. So why give him a deal? I think the prosecutors, A, must have realized that despite the fact that he's facing 15 years, a guy his age on something like this where there's not a lot of case history is probably not going to get anywhere near that. And then the effort and manpower going into prosecuting him versus the value he would have to testify in court about his role there, like public relations-wise, it's already a victory, you know, because everybody was giving up on Alvin Bragg and the investigation of Trump for dead, you know, when those two star appointees of Cy Vance left. And now this is very much back in the game. So it's a momentum for the DA's office if they want to continue pursuing Trump himself. It cuts out a very toilsome part of the trial against an individual, and it's much tougher to get a criminal conviction of a guy who's 75 years old and you generate some sympathy for him than it is an, an organization. People just don't care about finding an organization guilty. The organization's not going to jail. So there are several upsides you know, embedded in this for the prosecution. Right. So, And the fact that the Trump organization sent out a statement that it had done nothing wrong and looked forward to going to trial. And the company called Weisselberg a fine and honorable man. So they're happy that he kept his mouth shut, at least as far as Trump is concerned. So let's talk a little bit about the criminal investigation to Trump, which you referenced. So there was this push when Cy Vance was prosecutor to try to pursue this criminally. We went up to the Supreme Court. 
to get the tax yes, documents. Yes. Push, 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 and then Alvin Bragg comes in, and nothing. He says it's still going on, but is it? Is there an investigation going on? This is a uh, a complex story. So <laughs> to simplify it, uh, you are correct. The former district attorney, Cy Vance, um, embarked on this prosecution several years ago after a Bloomberg story, a story in Bloomberg News pointed out that, you know, Weisselberg had been paying for, or the Trump organization had been paying for the apartment of Weisselberg's son and his wife and all sorts of other payments like that that were off the books. And books and records violations to, to conceal a fraud. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a crime in New York state law. So prosecutors started that, and you're right. They uh, asked for eight years of Trump's tax returns and the company's tax returns. And Trump, as usual, fought it all the way to the Supreme Court and lost and went to the Supreme Court again. So he helped run out the clock by fighting that way against Cy Vance. However, it was a year ago, uh, or late, late June, early July last year, when uh, Weisselberg and the organization were charged criminally. Um, and Vance had decided not to run for re-election, and he had six months left in his term. And it's strange how he played the last few months. Uh, I think he could have, you know, there was no new information that came in in the second half of uh, uh, 2021, and yet he waited until mid-December with two weeks left in his term and a successor who had been elected um, to, you know, basically... Uh, direct his top two deputies to pursue this aggressively with an eye towards getting an indictment within three months of the new guy's term. So um, anyway, you know, this is how it unfolds. Uh, Alvin Bragg takes office and, uh, uh, you know, he starts going over some of the material there, some of the material that had been passed along to Alvin Bragg by uh, the two men you know, in question, Vance's team did not contain some of the downsides of a prosecution. In other words, there was a lot of uh, paperwork and arguments why this was the right thing to do uh, and why it could be very winnable. There were a few documents that had been existed in the office that pointed out the challenges of this case that were omitted from the file that these two individuals presented to Alvin Bragg. And of course, you know, he's the boss of the office. When he eventually did see this, he developed some skepticism towards the presentations they had made to him. Um, and then I guess the, you know, when they realized they weren't going to be controlling this investigation or getting what they wanted, um, they quit. One of, one of the two wrote a resignation letter uh, that was so detailed and critical of Bragg that it had to have been something that was designed to be put in the public domain. Right. Um, so, yes, there was so there was a widespread belief that based on that resignation letter that that Bragg's investigation was over. Um, but I think he was hoping to get something more. And as small as this might be, even though you and I wouldn't use the word flip to uh, to talk about uh, uh, Alan Weisselberg, he will have to testify truthfully about crimes he committed and admitted to. So this is something that's going to be damaging. It This could be something uh, like, even though it might seem incremental, uh, I think it's a little bigger than that, that could break other pieces of the, of the puzzle loose. So anyway, that's a, you know, a summary it, of the events is, of the last ver- nine months. It is very months. complex, and a lot of things we don't know from the outside looking in. Looking at this investigation, all that will happen to the Trump organization, as I understand it, is fines if they're convicted. Is the attorney general, Letitia James's investigation, more problematic for Trump? Yes, I think so, uh, for several reasons. One, it's a civil case. It's a civil case, which means you know the, the bar is lower in terms of a jury. 
if she actually files a suit against the Trump Organization and accuses it of defrauding New York State and other entities, but she represents the state, so defrauding New York State of tax revenue or, or whatever. Um, she has a lot of strong evidence on her own. Um, the fact that the CFO of the Trump Organization you know, in another venue, the DA's office criminally pleaded guilty to 15 criminal counts about tax evasion and tax abuse is is a positive for her, you know, to the extent she wants to bring it in. And if, like, do you need any more evidence that, you know, the Trump organization intentionally cheated New York State? You have got the CFO admitting to a portion of that. So if she does, and when Trump himself and his son uh, finally sat for depositions, they took the Fifth Amendment um, like frequently and, and provided no meaningful time. answers. Now, that's another difference between a criminal investigation by the DA and a civil investigation by the AG. Um, in a criminal trial, you know, a jury is not allowed to draw any inferences from a witness who takes the fifth. Um, there's a protection against that. But in a civil trial, you can draw an inference. Um, that's sort of so if you could say, you know, we talked to the CEO, we tried to depose him in this case, this would be. Letitia James's people, if she goes to trial and he took the fifth, he refused to answer any questions on the grounds it may incriminate him. So that's something that a jury could, you know, take as a as an inference. So I think she has a much higher chance of success with this. Um, and then, uh, yes, she has the power to, you know, first of all, uh, there could be a huge financial penalty, which would really, you know, cripple the Trump Organization, or worse, I mean, she tried to disband um, the National Rifle uh, Association, the NRA. Yeah. So I'm not sure she'd be a very squeamish or uh, <laughs> you know delicate about how to treat the Trump Organization. I wouldn't be surprised if she really went for it and say this is a criminal enterprise and you know should not be allowed to do business or be headquartered in New York. So Weisselberg, is, the judge is not going to sentence him till after the trial Correct. in October. Yes. So that's that's a standard practice. So in order to ensure you you don't want to be too lenient or too harsh, you know, you want to see if the guy actually was truthfully testifying. Otherwise, if things go sideways or he doesn't testify truthfully, that will affect the sentence. The prosecutors might tear it up and say, no, this guy, you know, didn't tell the truth. Um, and he's got a $2 million fine, which might be a drop in the bucket to him. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a drop in the bucket to him, but uh, for someone facing, you know, time in Rikers jail, that's the least of his problems, if right. you know what I mean. So he's got the money, and I'm sure he would not want to pay it. But the, the serious jail time years in prison at his age is sort of like the real, you know, <laughs> sort of Damocles over him. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Greg Farrell, Bloomberg News investigative reporter for the legal enforcement team. The Trump Organization is facing the same charges as Weisselberg. In a statement, the organization said, We now look forward to having our day in court, which, quite interestingly, has been scheduled for October 24th, just days before the midterm elections. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.